Now from March 2005, Miles Kington explores the skill of creating comedy. Do not adjust your set. Or at lich hongeth beware as theo frean under shatter for an isturel. Bith stith on tiard steda haveth godne. No, that wasn't the soundtrack from a Swedish film. It was in fact a man asking a very rude riddle in Anglo-Saxon. A thousand years ago, you'd have understood it easily. And in 30 minutes you will as well, because as a reward for making it to the end of the programme, we'll upgrade it into English for you. Meanwhile, I'm Miles Kington, and welcome to Kington's Anatomy of Comedy, in which I hope to set a world record by taking a look at the art of comedy without being either pompous or dull. The first vital thing that people always try to do is define the difference between wit and humour, and between humour and comedy, and incredibly dreary it is too. So instead, in this first programme, The Mechanics of Mirth, we'll have a look at the way jokes actually work. What is the shape of a joke? What triggers off the laugh? And why did humans start laughing in the first place? The first time somebody laughed was when the tribe was out hunting, and one of them thought he saw a tiger and went, Ah! And then he looked again, and it wasn't a tiger, and he went, Ha! 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 And so that noise of laughing means basically, it's not a tiger, it's only an old bin liner. That's my theory, anyway. But enough anonymous cavemen. Let us speed forward to the first written history and ask Professor Terry Dolan of University College Dublin, who specialises in the history of comedy, from medieval to modern, to take us to the first known jokes and to name names. He goes back to Homer, when you have Ares and Aphrodite who are having an affair and her husband Hephaestus finds her and he strings them up in a net. All the people come in and laugh at them there. Uh, but at the same time, the people laugh at him too because he's lame. So that's one of the first examples of the cruelty of humour as well. People caught in flagrante delicto, which is funny, and then you have these people laughing at someone who is lame, and this is following on from what both, I think, um, Aristotle and also Plato said, that lameness is a good ground for laughing at someone. This is all a bit worrying. There was this strange moral view too, that if someone were very disabled, it was their fault, and therefore there was no moral opprobrium in laughing at their disability. Comedians don't make fun of the disabled anymore. They don't have to. They've got a whole audience to choose victims from. You know that moment when the comedian looks down at someone in the front row and says, What's your name, sir? And you know he's got the power to make you feel like an outcast and make everyone else in the audience laugh at you. Broadcaster and comedian Mark Lamar knows what it's like to have that power. It's an ugly macho thing to do. You're walking on stage to say, I want to be the alpha male in this room. Even if you're a woman, that's kind of uh, the attitude of saying, look, yes, shut up, all of you, there's 500 of you, there's 2,000 of you, I want you to all just stare at me, listen, and at the end of every sentence, agree with me via a laugh, and when I leave, tell me I'm fantastic, and maybe one of you will sleep with me, certainly two of you will buy me a drink. Worship me, worship me, that'll do, bye, don't speak to me ever again. Comedy is the new rock and roll, we used to be told, and comedians do thrive on that kind of crowd adulation. But it's nothing new. It was happening back in musical days, and it might go back as far as someone like Chaucer. Terry Jones has the details. Um, when he read Troilus and Cressida for the first time, we have, I was going to say a photograph, we have, we have a picture of him actually doing it. And you can see it's a star performance. He's up there, the whole court is there listening to it, and they're all going gooey-eyed, and the ladies in the court just can't believe what they're hearing. It must have been a most exciting occasion. Humour is not the same in all times and all places. It's not even very international. 
because it develops differently in different cultures. And this is something I'll be exploring in our third programme, which we've called the Geopolitics of Jest, in order to attract funding from the Green Party. But right now, let's ask when the first people appeared who were prepared to get up on stage and be primitively funny. Sir, is it true that you are 2,000 years old? Oh, boy. (laughs) Yes. You are too... uh, It's hard to believe, sir, because in the history of man, nobody's ever lived more than 167 years as the man from Peru would claim to be. Uh, But you claim to be 2,000. Yes, I'll be... I'm not yet. I'll be... I'll be... Uh, 2000, October 16th. (laughs) Yes, no comedy roundup would be complete without one snatch from Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner doing the 2,000-year-old man. But who were actually the first real old-style comics? Dr. Alan Fletcher of University College Dublin describes how jesters used all parts of their body to get a laugh. When we think of the jesters of Merry England, maybe the first that we hit upon are Shakespeare's, but they're a very wordy and a clever bunch, actually. They're not really typical. Their knockabout tends to be more linguistic than physical. But go back a bit in time and you start finding jesters for whom the human body itself is the stage of performance. The body was foregrounded as the site of mirth. And we see this in the routines that medieval jesters typically performed. There were jugglers, acrobats, contortionists, face pullers, and all these guys made a performance event out of things that the body could do. There's some wonderful pictures of minstrels in the 13th century. There's a great German picture of some minstrels, and they're all looking at each other. And there's a guy in the middle playing a violin, and the other minstrels are all standing around him looking at each other. And some are looking at the king who's sitting up on a dais, and the king is holding his finger up, and the others are all looking. They're obviously waiting for a signal, for, and something's going to happen. <laughs> and when you look at the picture a bit clearer, you can see that the violinist is standing on a mat, and there's two guys on either side who've got ropes attached to the mat. And at the signal, they're obviously going to tip him up or something. But I think it was pretty rough-and-ready kind of humour. Uh, Henry II's favourite minstrel was Roland Le Péteur, um, whose speciality was... Uh, a leap, a whistle, and a fart. So, so it's kind of you get the idea of the kind of humour that was going on in those days. Now, if people who were good at music could then learn how to make people laugh, does this mean that anyone could be funny if the right person taught them? Like Mark Lamar, for instance. Do you th- do you think you could take anyone and make them do a comedian for twenty minutes? Yeah, I think you could. I think, you know, they're never going to be written about, but like, like W. C. Fields. But I think you could take anyone. Yeah, no, I think you could. Some jokes go old very quickly. And yet, with a bit of care, even a medieval joke 600 years old can still be brought back to life. Mr Terry Jones will now attempt life after death. There is a joke about a poor man who only had bread to eat for his lunch and uh, he got into the habit of sitting on the roof of the bakery to eat his bread because he could smell all the smells of the uh, meat pies as they were being made. And the baker got really fed up with him in the end and demanded that he pay him a shilling for sitting there and and smelling his meat pies. And uh, the fool was brought in to decide on the issue and the fool said to the poor man, he said, right, throw your shilling down there. So the poor man threw his shilling on the floor. And uh, the fool then said to the baker, well, there you are, you see, he's had the smell of your food, you've heard the sound of his money, you quits. Now, compare that joke with one by Spike Milligan. Um, I haven't got any money, here's a photograph of a £10 note. Um, here's a photograph of a £20 note, excellent, I'll owe you a photograph of some change. Spike's joke remembered by David Quantic, award-winning comedy writer for The Day Today, Brass Eye, Smack the Pony, and so on. 
He remembers that goon joke because it was on tape and available and repeatable. But there must be thousands of earlier jokes that got away. Dr. Fletcher, jokes have loads of cultural capital tied up in them, and they're essentially oral performances. So, for that same reason, they're ephemeral. It tells us a lot about their cultural value then that they get written down and given a permanent form. Right, down to business. Can you divide jokes into different categories? Are there even joke archetypes? There are some forms of humour, yes, that seem to be archetypal. Smut, innuendo, for instance, they've been around for a long time. Right, so there are different archetypes. But is there any surefire way of using these archetypes? Are there scientific laws, perhaps? Professor Dolan, my sense is there is a science to gag writing because everything that we have comes from a formula. So jokes are formulaic, and the material, of course, can change because you have areas of accent and voice and sound and situation and class and all kinds of other ingredients which make a joke different from other ones. But the basic formula would be the same. Right. So we've got archetypes and the science of gag writing, and and I don't feel I'm getting anywhere nearer to seeing how it really works. Making jokes is easy, as simple as A B C. Just remember, set a punchline and the rule of three. You can knock 'em dead, but I'm not leaving here till I find some comedian who is prepared to tell me how jokes are born, even if it is very mundane and painful.、Uh, David Quantic, perhaps. Generally, the easy way to do a joke is juxtaposition, which is that you take two or three things that have nothing in common. For example, Melvin Bragg. And Ike Turner, which is a sketch I did with Jane Bosman, and you take the idea that Melvin Bragg is Melvin Bragg, and Ike Turner is Ike Turner, and you add the third element, which is that they are married. Ike Turner is an abusive husband. Melvin Bragg makes excuses for him. Melvin Bragg has a dinner party. Ike Turner comes round, abuses all the guests, and accuses Melvin Bragg of having sex with Faye Weldon. Someone will say, "I went into a chip shop the other day," and. By the time they say, you know, I said, "Is this fish cooked?" and they said, "Why?" because it's eating my chips or whatever. By the time they've said, "Because it's eaten," you've gone through a long list of where have I heard this before? Where have I heard this format? Have I heard someone else do this joke? What is the next thing that someone would say in this joke? Because that's how a joke works. I know there's got to be a twist at the end. I know, I'm wondering why this man's asked for this fresh, this fish is fresh or not, etc.,、um, etc. Et and every comic does that, and it's just. That's just a muscle in their brain that is strengthened by watching millions and millions of jokes and millions and millions of performances the whole time. Problem of being a comedy writer, if I can be really vain, is that when you see a comic act or a sketch, you spend half the time treating it like a crossword puzzle and trying to work out what's going to happen next. Oh, I bet it turns out he's a fireman. Sometimes a joke depends on getting one word exactly right, and I can give you an example. The American jazz musician Eddie Condon heard that a French producer was coming over to the USA to supervise some American jazz sessions, and Condon was disgusted. He said, "Why is a Frenchman coming here to show us how to play jazz? Do I tell him how to jump on a grape?" I once heard Alistair Cook telling that one, but he said, "Do I tell him how to jump on grapes?" He got it wrong. A grape, funny. Grapes, not funny. Eric Sykes. When I was、uh, writing with Spike Milligan on the Goon shows, and、uh, we used to write them together for for a time, and then we had an enormous row which went on for two days over one word in a line, and that one word he wanted, and I didn't want, and he thought without that word this line didn't have anything, and I thought. It, it had to be there, so we we split. I wrote one week and he wrote another, but a whole two days on one word in the 
in the number of words that would go into a goon show. That, how important, it, it's rhythm mainly. Once you've got the joke right, it still has to be performed right. And if someone else is doing it, this can be torture. David Quantic. The whole thing of phrasing is quite important, the exact balance of words. It sounds very poncy, but while you rely on the interpretative abilities of actors and comedians to enhance your work, and you also acknowledge the fact that if you could say it yourself, you'd be doing it, whereas they can, and they are, it really does get on your nerves to have somebody treat your lines as just some noises to make while they gurn at the camera. It is actually possible to be funny without using jokes. I always thought Quentin Crisp was a very funny man and a very funny writer, but he only once told a joke, and that was just to explain the way jokes worked. It was about the boy who goes to a healer to report that his father's ill, too ill to come and see him, and the healer says he must tell his father that he's not really ill, he only thinks he's ill. I'll pass that on, says the son. The healer sees the son again two days later. How's your father, he says. Oh, says the son, he thinks he's dead. And then Crisp gives a long analysis of the shape of the joke, which I will spare you, and passed directly on his head to Bob Monkhouse, who collected and analysed jokes and joke-telling more than anyone. And here he is, dissecting the technique of his own hero, Max Miller. He's a boy, isn't he, eh? <laughs> I hope so. Timing, timing. He was timing on legs, well, that man. How can you tell? You can't tell. You can't tell. You can change overnight. <laughs> See how he slows up, repeats himself, emphasis, little touches. He's a master of technique. That's nice, Maxie. That is nice. <laughs> Why does that make us Maxie. chuckle? Oh, Maxie. <laughs> That's down, is it, Ira? That one's down. Must be the cold weather. <laughs> Always the innuendo. Well, here's the first song, the song entitled The Girls Who Do. So there we were, remembering Bob Monkhouse, remembering Max Miller, remembering his jokes. But there are some comedians who can't really be said to do jokes much at all. They use other weapons, absurdist and surrealist weapons, for a start. Surrealism is very weird because, of course, it's an art movement. A lot of surrealism is very frightening. It's all skulls and wobbly clocks and things. I think surrealism becomes funny when it comes in contact with the mundane, everyday world. When your Salvador Dali-style wobbly clock or bird skull on a stick has to go to Safeways and buy some pens. And really, one of the few people I see who does that now would be either Vic and Bob, Vic Reeves and Bob Mortimer in the 90s, or Eddie Izzard, who both have very different takes on surrealism. It's not just funny, and I think that's the whole thing about humour, is that it shouldn't be just funny. If it's just funny, it's not going to last. You know, it's the mother-in-law jokes. But it's when jokes, or when humour has a certain beauty and a certain quality to it. And that's what Eddie does. He creates a world that you don't want to leave. You like his world. It's funny, but it's also something, there's something touching and beautiful or magical about it, and you want to be in that world that he creates. It has been a hard day's night, and I have been working like a dog. It's been a hard day's night. The unmistakable sound of Peter Sellers, which brings us to another weapon in the armory, funny voices. And they go back a long way, at least as far as... Oh, here we are at Chaucer again. In the Reeves' term, but he has two Cambridge students, Alan and John, who are both by Chaucer for the first time in English given northern accents. Oh, what happened to you? Whatever happened to me? 
And by giving them northern accents, you are thereby showing they are not like us, they are different from us, separate from us, and therefore country people. Be God, right be the hopper will he stand, and say who gratis the corn gas in, yet so he never be me father kin, who that the hopper wag is still and fra. And of course, puns and wordplay. People rarely admit to enjoying wordplay, but you can't avoid it. That's how young children first learn about jokes. Knock, knock, who's there? Wurlitzer. Wurlitzer who? Well, it's a one for the money, two for the show, three to get... Re- Still one of my favourites. Sorry. Over to Ronnie Barker. Oh, yes, I love words and the daftness of the English language and spelling. Oh, yes, I love it all. Do you have any comic writers that you consciously or unconsciously copy? I don't think consciously, but I'm sure unconsciously, yes. Who would they be? Yes. I don't know, because it's unconscious. <laughs> Ronnie Barker talking to Paul Vaughan in 1974. He evolved a very clever style of wordplay comedy, all that four candles, fork handles stuff, you remember? Good. David Quantic. It's a limited thing. I think puns do go a very long way. It's the difference between puns and plays on words. One's funny, the other's spectacularly bad. One of the annoying things about being a writer is that you come up with these fantastically complex, clever sentences, and you're really happy because you've managed to work in a word like xylophone or antelope into a sketch, and it doesn't work. I I really hate writers who, when they're writing characters, make them all sound the same. They all sound like Alan Bennett. Someone's put that xylophone over there by the candelabra. Oh, I wonder if the asparagus will thrive. And everyone talks like it. It's kind of day one. Somebody said to me about another comedian, very disparagingly, oh, he's still at the aardvark stage. Because the first thing that lots of comedy people do when they're teenagers is they think the word aardvark is hilarious. And it is when you're 15. Like the word fart is to people in their early 20s. And most of the Channel 4 comedians of today. I'll tell you something else that's funny, and that's filth. Not to me, obviously, I, I can't stand it. But I have to like it for the purposes of this programme, so I can't help pointing out that comedians like it too. Even the ones that don't. I once went to see Dave Allen do a stage show, the suave, elegant, sophisticated, clean Dave Allen. And it was so filthy, it took me aback, though not as much as the lady friend I'd taken along. And yet, and yet, we do enjoy it all. And I wonder why. Because they remind us of something else. It's a mnemonic device. I think people laugh at the word um, feck because it reminds them of... Uh, yes, thank you very much. So you have various euphemisms. So people nearly say the real word and they say something close to it and people fill in the difference and then laugh at how clever they are. Jokes about sex can be quite funny, but jokes which are nearly about sex can be really funny. That's because we love innuendo. We love people flirting with taboos. The filthiest word in English comedy is not a four-letter word, I think. It's a two-letter word. It's... It, because it stands for so many other words. Morecambe and Wise once did a sketch about them splitting up and meeting again after 30 years, and the elderly Wise says in a melancholy sort of way, Well, Eric, how long is it now? And the elderly Morecambe says, I beg your pardon? There were gales of laughter which I'm not going to explain. Let Professor Dolan do a bit of explaining. We laugh at sex because we see ourselves in that position as well. The French have a marvellous expression, nostalgie de la boue which means craving to get back to the mud. 
So most of us lead fairly respectable, controlled lives, ridden, I suppose, by the tyranny of convention. But when we see people at it on stage or wherever else, we get a great laugh at it, especially if there is a little bit of titillation and also a bit of cruelty as well, as with Chaucer and a male bottom being put out of a window in the, in the Miller's Tale, which is hit with a red-hot plowshare. If you've been with us since the start of the programme, it may well be because you wanted to hear that opening rude Anglo-Saxon riddle in English. It's what comedians like to call a knob gag. That's K-N-O-B. For a long time I thought the term was knob gag, spelled N-O-B, meaning a joke about the knobs or aristocrats. But then I've always been much more interested in class than sex. Now, Dr Fletcher, on with the riddle. A wondrous thing hangs by a man's thigh under a lord's clothing. There's a hole in the front of it. It's strong and hard. It has a good firmness. The riddle goes on to talk about how this man likes poking his strong, hard thing into a familiar hole. And the answer to the riddle, of course, is a key. Yes, a key. Do all comedians want to go through a filthy stage or or sort of break the barriers or or do bottom? I mean, often you do that stuff to put them in in the good mood. You know, sometimes you just want to quick, particularly in a TV recording, Sometimes you want to go, look, yeah, we're struggling, we're in a little trough now. And sometimes you go, look, bang, 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 I'll hit you with this, let's carry on with the match. Shock is, is, is a fantastic tool. But yet you do have to have, you know, a quiver full of different arrows, I think, to, to really command people's attention for, for more than 20 minutes. Mark Lamar. Now, this may be radio, but we can't ignore the existence of sight gags. Some of the greatest comedians never spoke at all. Buster Keaton. Charlie Chaplin, Harold Lloyd, not till 1927 at least. Can their visual gags be classified in the same way as verbal gags perhaps can? Terry Jones. In a way, the grammar of it is no different from uh, the grammar of uh, verbal comedy. You don't want to overstate something. Uh, Lowell and Hardy overstate things, you know, because they... Stan falls off something and uh, or Ollie falls into a butt of water or something like that. And the, actually what was funny was really maybe the actual mechanics of how he got there. You're not expecting it and he lands in the thing. But then they stay on him while he sits there and sits there and sits there as if that was the funny thing, being in the water. Um, so that, I, that, that's when Laurel and Hardy overdo it, I think. Sight gags can be brilliant. I think the thing is that people overuse them. You know, somebody falling over in 1905 was hilarious. Somebody falling over now has to be absolutely fantastic. There's a famous Simpsons sequence where Homer falls off a cliff, is winched up, falls off again, is winched up, falls off again, and then finally gets in the gurney and hits his head several times before getting to the top, is put in the ambulance, then slides out the back of the ambulance in the stretcher and falls down the cliff all over again. So it can be done, but if I ever see someone with a custard pie again or somebody just falling over for no reason, I'll burn their hair. So what does it take to get a visual gag just right? Now here's John Cleese on how they worked out just one moment in Faulty Towers. The thing about the beating the car sequence is, is how technical it is, is. It took a very long time to find a branch that was right. We tried beating it with a fairly rigid branch, and it wasn't funny at all. And we tried beating it with a floppy branch, and that didn't work. And then we finally got a branch that had the right degree of flexibility, and it became terribly funny. And it showed that now, no matter how good an idea is, there's always an enormous amount of getting it right technically, which nobody knows unless they actually do it. Often you don't know why these things are the case and you just have to stumble around trying things until you discover what works. 
I always feel comedy is very susceptible. An example of that is uh, <laughs> a sketch that we did for the Python TV show. It's called, it was the Dirty Fork sketch. I think it's Graham complains about a, a fork being dirty in a restaurant and it, the whole thing escalates until finally the, the cook comes and commits suicide in front of everybody or something. Um, and it was always, it always got great laughs on, it got in, on the TV show. But then when we, when we uh, made it into the film and now for something completely different, that particular sketch, when we showed it, first showed it to an audience, didn't get any laugh at all. And I couldn't see what Ian had done differently on it. The performances were funny, and we were all scratching our heads. And the only thing I could think of that was different was that Ian had laid some a soundtrack of uh, Muzak over it. So we took that Muzak off, and then when we showed the film, everybody laughed at the sketch again. And I think it's probably rhythm. I think it's filling in all the, all the comic timing, all the spaces. And so you don't give anybody that moment of whatever it is. It just sort of makes turns everything into a mush. And I think comedy really does rely on on rhythms and stops and starts. But can you know too much about the technique of comedy? Is it better to rely on instinct? I once found myself talking to Galton and Simpson at a reception, the men who had created Hancock and Steptoe Son. And I asked them shyly, is there any one lesson you wish you'd been taught before you started out on comedy writing? One thing you didn't have to learn the hard way. No, nope, said one. It was best to learn it all the hard way. David Quantic. Now, the technical side can get in the way a lot. In that when I first started writing sitcoms, I didn't really know much about it. But I enjoyed doing it. I put in things that I thought was funny and you just sort of charge along like a drunken horse. And that would be a lot of fun. Then after a while, somebody says, you really should go on one of those courses. But then you go on one of those courses and you spend six years learning story arc and the three-act structure and all this kind of thing. And it's basically just trying to learn to swim while cooking. In the end, if you know what you're doing, it'll be funny and a grown-up will come along and tart it up for you. That's all I've learned. So, what is the secret mechanism that brings a joke alive and firing? Well, let's listen to something funny and see if we can spot it. Let's go back to the 2,000-year-old man. Who was the person who discovered the female? Bernie. <laughs> who was Bernie? Bernie, one of the first leaders of, the, of our group. And he discovered the female. Yes. How did it happen? He How said, did it come hey, to pass? You can tell that Mel Brooks is the funny man and Carl Reiner is the straight guy. You can tell they'd done it before. But can you tell that they had no script, no set jokes, no editing? They had done this thing so often... The whole routine had started out at private parties, that by this stage they were like jazz musicians taking on an old familiar number and teasing new twists out of it, taking a few risks, maybe trying to surprise each other. But there was one thing in that performance that we've not met anywhere else in this programme. The things Mel Brooks said got laughs not so much because they were funny as because the character he was playing made them seem funny. It's the first trace we've had of character comedy, of something being funny in one person's mouth but not another's. It's the mystery of why Victor Meldrew saying, I don't believe it, is screamingly funny, but not when you or I say it. Luckily, there are still plenty of mysteries in comedy. I think when you start as a comic, you're filled with such fear. And quite rightly so, you're on with professionals who know, or you sort of think know how it's done. No one, in essence, knows how it's done. Comedy is about being as funny as possible, not, not just sort of funny enough. You've got to be as funny as you can possibly be within that time. That's the secret of comedy. It is tragedy plus shut up. I don't know. I mean, humour to me is very, if very difficult thing. It's a, Browning described a metaphor as saying that a metaphor was when you take two disparate ideas and you join them together and you produce not a third idea but a star. 
And I sometimes feel that's what comedy is. You produce two disparate ideas and you put them together and you produce not a star, but a laugh. And, and that's the magical moment when that happens. What becomes of you, my love? Join me next time when we'll look a bit harder at the comedy of character and try to work out why someone like Ricky Gervais in The Office is so funny, though nothing he says is funny, and why more people remember the name of Alf Garnett than the actor who played him. The producers were Andrew McGibbon and Nick Romero. Kington's Anatomy of Comedy is a Curtains for Radio production for BBC Radio 4. I like traffic lights. I like traffic lights. Even when that is... I can't remember the other again. <laughs> oh, it's such a long time since I did it. Kington's Anatomy of Comedy was presented by Miles Kington and produced by Andrew McGibbon.